Amen. And have a seat. And I think that we. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Vanessa. That was. It's just really important to realize that, like, this has even happened on a worship night or two, hasn't it? That, like, the way that the Lord has kind of shown up in the room was very different, even in the first half than the second half and some stuff. So it takes some time to learn that that that's still genuinely like the Lord's presence, and He's just very kind. My assumption is that we, uh, you know, even as we, we parent our kids, we kind of bring some tenderness in certain moments, don't we? Some invitation instead of some challenge. So I think it's just really cool that after a weekend that was kind of like super intense Holy Spirit fire where I think like the end count of healings was like seven or eight, um, that he would also just be really, really gentle with us. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 John 4. That's at the very end of your Bible. So if you like flip to the back end and move to the left, 1 John 4 is where we're going to be. St. <clears throat> Augustine, one of the early church fathers, once said, the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. I mean, have you been watching the news? Have you been looking at social media? Y'all, Christians are kind of the worst, right? Uh, I, I was kind of raised to believe that there should be like this moral standard that because we're at like this spiritual advantage as Christians, we should like be leading the way. I think we are leading the way. The problem is we're like leading the way in anger, divisiveness, contempt, Sex hunger, power hunger, abuse. We are infighting. We are selfish. We are dramatic. Yeah, the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. Kind of resonates, right? I mean, on a regular basis, I talk to people who have been hurt by church. In fact, some of you are at our church because you've been hurt by church. The longer you're a part of a church, the more you expose yourself to that. I mean, you, you come to a church and you like the people and you meet with the Lord and so you start giving your money and you start serving and you start leading and you're doing all of these things and then kablammo, the drama and the infighting and the they said and the, the she said and like trying to just keep the machine alive just chews some people up and spits them out. And yet you're here. You're like a, a bad penny in Jesus' pocket. You just keep coming back, don't you? Why? Why do you keep coming back? Because the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. I mean, sometimes it just seems wiser. Let's just skip community life altogether. Church attendance, committed people, their average church attendance every month is 1.8 times a month. A committed Christian attends church 1.8 times a month. Pre-pandemic, that's a pre-pandemic number. So then 2020 happens, and now we got church on TV, and I can, like, participate without participating, right? So I can do the dishes, and I, I can fold the laundry, and I can wrangle my kids, and we don't have to get dressed. And we, you know, there was a, two summers ago, we did a pre-recorded service, and so Steph and I went to brunch with Jack. I looked at her, and I said, babe, this is why people don't go to church. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, I have my whole day stretched out in front of me, and it's only 11. It's incredible. 
We're busier than we've ever been. We're way more stressed. We're way more anxious. We're overcommitted. Our weeks are getting longer. They're not getting shorter. And being a part of a church takes time, and there's this dude up front that keeps asking me for more. Ain't nobody got time for that. So why do we keep going back? Why do we keep showing up? Why do we give despite the busyness and serve? And why do we do all this? Because the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. If you're a non-Christian in the room, I don't even know why you're here sometimes. (laughs) Because again, Christians are the worst. We're just not great people. I mean, I've been looking at some demographic data for our area, not Portland, not Columbus, not LA, not New York. Why, Why do people that aren't Christians, why do they avoid churches? Do you know why they say? Infighting, conflict, drama, they can watch that on TV and turn it off. They don't have to, like, go be a part of it, you know? Seven years ago when we were starting Regen, by the way, I guess October, if this is our seventh birthday, woo, anyway. Um, we knocked on every single door in our neighborhood. That's called the Kuzma allotments, and if you're from Champion, that evidently means something. I'm not from Champion, so I was just like, oh, it's like a neighborhood, but it's like the Kuzma allotments. <laughs> um, we have a sign and everything, and so... We knocked on every door in that neighborhood that summer, every door that would open to us. We knocked on every single one, and over and over again, you know what we heard? We'd say, hey, we're starting this new community of faith. We'd love to have you join us, da 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 And you know what they said over and over and over again? I used to be a part of a church. Then we had a fight, and I've stopped being a Christian. I mean, I'm talking like tons of people in our community that have been a part of church, totally wounded by that experience, basically giving up on the way of Jesus. And y'all have been doing this missional listening, right? What are the questions that your friends and neighbors are asking? And what you're hearing over and over again are sentiments like, I like God, I just am not interested in church. I like Jesus, please keep me away from Christians. One person wrote down on a post-it note, Christians are mean, I don't want to go where they're going. Now, I'm not sure if that's like an eternal destination issue. (laughs) Or like a, what I'm doing for an hour on Sunday issue, but in either case, Christians are mean. I don't want to go there either. I don't want part of a mean club. As we've been doing this missional listening, we're hearing a, a dissonance between a personal expression of spirituality and faith and a corporate expression of spirituality and faith. We'll, we'll abandon the corporate. We'll just do personal. And we're abandoning, we're seeing our friends and neighbors abandon a corporate way of faith because of their questions revolving around goodness and beauty. Remember that matrix? We're always seeking after the true, the beautiful, and the good. Our friends and neighbors really aren't all that sure if being a part of a church will make them a more upright person. Will it make them truly, in a good way, morally superior, or is it going to make them actually morally worse? It's a question of beauty. Does does this thing that we do add beauty to our lives. This is a sermon in a series on proclamation and demonstration, on telling and showing the good news of Jesus. But it's a sermon that's starting to sound a whole lot like a community sermon, isn't it? Community is important. Join a small group. See you next week. Community is one way that we demonstrate the gospel. Yeah, it's a way that we demonstrate the gospel. Jesus says, by this is how the world will know that 
You'll be about, you're my disciples. I'm misquoting it. I think it's on the screen. Is it on the screen? Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, I looked up this word love in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, and what it does not mean is your agreed-upon beliefs will tell the world that you're my disciples. Doctrine's important. Hear me. Doctrine's super important. But the way that the world will know who we are is by our love. And I just keep wondering this week, what if, what if, what if? What if the gospel, what if our love for one another is not just a way that we demonstrate the gospel? What if our love for one another is a form of proclamation? What if our love for one another is the sermon that we're writing together to proclaim to our friends and neighbors? I want to explore what it would be like to proclaim the good news of Jesus together in our love for one another. And to do that, I want to, I've brought some friends. I've brought two dead people. Um, one is St. Augustine, and the other is the Apostle John, ancient saints who ordered their lives in the way of love. And I want us to think about how we might together proclaim the good news of Jesus to our friends and neighbors through our love. But let's start here. We'll get to 1 John 4 in a minute, but let's start here. Augustine never called the church a whore. He never said that. Uh, In fact, in all the writings that we have of him, which are many, Augustine's one of the most prolific uh, church fathers. In none of his writings can we see something that even resembles the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. He never said that, but you know what he did say? Uh, By the way, if it's pithy and memorable, it's probably a lie, right? Uh, church is a horror. It's also another. Mm, um, here's what he did call the church. He never called the church a horror. He did call the church a mixed body. A mixed body. What did he mean by that? Augustine uh, was born in 354. I have a picture of him. He was born in Algeria, which is northern Africa. So by my estimation, he's probably a little too white uh, in that picture. Um, Augustine's 20s and 30s were lived how we all wish our 20s and 30s could have been spent. Um, Wild parties, orgies, uh, lots of drinking, uh, but by the the time he was 30, he was invited to Milan, which is in Italy, to the highest and most prestigious academic role in the known world at that time. Augustine's a philosopher, Milan is a center for philosophical thinking, and now Augustine at age 30 has peaked in his career. He has the dream job. He is an Instagram influencer at 30. Uh, Augustine's uh, mother was a devoted Christian who was just so grieved, so grieved by Augustine's lifestyle of like licentiousness and drinking and partying and lots and lots of wild sex, and so uh, This is not really a kid-friendly sermon, but anyway, um, they're watching it on TV, so it's fine. Um, So Augustine's mom would just pray and fast that he would, like, come and know Jesus, right? And he used to tell her, oh, mother, I'm praying, but his prayer reportedly was, grant me chastity and restraint, but not yet. (laughs) Right? Again, every millennial's prayer when they pray, grant me that. Just not yet, right? 
So in 386, Augustine's about 31 years old. He goes to hear Ambrose, who at the time is the Bishop of Milan. Now, Ambrose, also a really prolific church father. We have a lot of his writings still. Ambrose was considered a master of rhetoric and logic, and so Augustine just went to hear him teach just to kind of watch and learn the the logic and the rhetoric. But something happened as Ambrose preached the Word of God. Uh, Augustine's conscience was pricked by the Holy Spirit. And a short while later, Augustine was, the story goes, sitting in a garden, and behind him on the other side of a hedge, he heard a child singing like this song, pick up and read, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he knew in his heart that it was referring to the scriptures. And so he did something that you should not do. You should not, this is not a good way to hear from the Lord, but it did work in this case, okay? He just opened up his Bible to a random passage of scripture. Um, and, And here is what he read. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. In my mind, Augustine is reading this like with a hangover from the party the night before. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness. His breath still smells of alcohol. Or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living, the perfume of some woman is still on his clothes or in quarreling and jealousy. You don't think that by some quarreling and jealousy he got to be the top by age 30? Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. You know, I said don't open up, a random, open up your Bible to a random passage of Scripture to hear from God, but every once in a while it works, and it works for Augustine. He's convicted of his sin, he puts his faith in Jesus, and Augustine quickly becomes one of the most influential theologians in church history. Now, Augustine arrives back in North Africa, he's now a a theologian, he's a church leader, and he arrives in the midst of a decades-long controversy. And here's where that controversy came from. Uh, In the early 300s, the emperor Diocletian, it may not have been Diocletian, but you're not going to look it up, and now I sound smart, so we're just going to keep going. Um, The Emperor Diocletian had instituted some policies that said um, Christianity was illegal, and so we need to, um, uh, if you're a citizen of the Roman Empire, you need to hand over all of your Christian scriptures and all of your Christian books. Um, For some of us, that would be a lot more work than others, right? My my office, that would take about a day. Um, And uh, you need to burn incense in front of an image of the emperor, right? An act, you need to worship the emperor. So some Christians did this. They handed over their books, and the word in Latin that they used to describe this was traditores, which is where we get our, Latin, our English word traitors, right? They handed over these books. The books were burnt. They uh, burned incense in front of the emperor, and they were welcomed back into Roman society. Now, here's the thing about the church in 300 uh, some A.D., Uh, if your pastor ticked you off, you couldn't go down the road to a different church that had better music, right? And if you sinned and went through the process of church discipline, you were cut out of the life of the church until you repented. And so here's these people have burnt incense in front of the emperor. They've now been excommunicated, but probably 
through their becoming a Christian, their own biological family abandoned them. Now their spiritual adopted family has abandoned them. Now they have no one. And so some of them, this is why community is so good, some of them came back and said, I've been convicted of my sin by the Holy Spirit. May I re-enter the community? And some churches were like, oh, heck no, techno. We are a, we are a pure body. We are a society of saints, not sinners. You have no business here. And other churches said, yes, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Repent and believe the good news for the kingdom is at hand. Come and be among us. And so these Christians would return and they would be discipled. And so Preston burnt the books in front of the, and, and burned the incense. And then all of a sudden he's convicted of guilt of his sin by the Holy Spirit. And he comes back, he says, can I be part of the church again? Yes, he's discipled. He becomes a leader. He becomes a pastor. He becomes a bishop. And now he's laying hands on other pastors and sending them out to be leaders. And so now he's sending Carmen and Holden and Terry and all of these leaders out to be these things. And the people over here are saying, they aren't real Christians. That's a backslider who, who, who lapsed. He can't be a bishop. And so there's all this fight about what is the nature of the church and are sinners allowed in or are they not? And what is the kind of society that we are? And Augustine steps into that and says, we are not a pure body. We are not a society of saints only. We are a mixed body. We are a society of sinners and saints. And from week to week, from month to month, from year to year, from hour to hour, we change teams. Augustine was looking at Matthew chapter 13, tells a story. The wheat and the tares. He says that, there's a farmer that went out to plant some seed, and when he planted it, a field began to grow, and um, growing up were wheat, the good stuff, and tares, weeds. The farmer can't go into the field to pull up the weeds to make sure that the wheat grows by itself, so Jesus says the farmer waits until the time of the harvest. He cuts it all down, and then he separates the wheat from the tares. Jesus says there's no real way to know this side of heaven who's in and who's out. He says we're a mixed body, Augustine. He says we are sinners and saints. We are weak and strong. We are sorrowful and rejoicing, gathered together in one spiritual family. Not a society of saints, but a society of saints and sinners. Even more, a society of sinners who are becoming saints. At any given moment, I might be a saint or a sinner, pure or impure, impure, And this is why church is so messy. We're a mixed body. Saints and sinners, weak and strong, all hanging out together, stepping on each other's toes, my sin bumping into your sin, you seeing me at my best and my worst. We're spiritual family. Here's the thing about Jack. Y'all think he's so cute. And he is. Genuinely cuter than any child who has ever lived. (laughs) Science, science, the CDC recommends that you know that. Um... And, uh, uh, but as his family, Steph and I get his best and his worst. So y'all don't even see the best of Jack. But thank you, Jesus, you do not see the worst of Jack, right? Um, We're spiritual family together. We see each other at our best and our worst. And so how do we muddle our way through? Not, Not the church as a whore, but the church as a mixed body. How do we find our way through? How do we live together? 
This is where John comes in and he shows us the way of love. John shows us the way of love in 1 John chapter 4. John is responsible for more of the New Testament than anybody but Paul. So he has a biography of Jesus, the book of John. He has an apocalyptic peak, a, a, a teaser of what the end of the world will look like, sort of. It's actually not about the end of the world. It's actually about right now. Um, I'm preaching the book of Revelation for Christmas Eve. <laughs> all is calm and all is bright. Or was it? Uh, I'm kind of not remembering where I'm at now. Okay, so John, John has this gospel. He has this apocalyptic glimpse at the real world. And then he has three little letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You could go home and read all of them today in like 15 minutes. They're great. He uses the word love 32 times in that letter. All three of those letters, 32 times. And there's this story, I heard it this week in a devotional. Uh, and the story goes like this. In old age, uh, John, by the way, was the last living apostle, according to tradition. It says, in old age, they would carry John from place to place, church to church, barely breathing. The last remaining connection on earth with the human son of God. Can you think about that for a second? Like, we... We have a lot of honor for like the last living veterans of say like World War II, but I mean, think about the last living person to be in the presence of Jesus. And whenever he arrived anywhere, crowds would gather to hear him see, hear and see him speak. And with great effort, he would sit up on his stretcher and the room would fall silent, hushed in eager anticipation. Love one another, he would cry. Love one another. He would then lie down. His three-word sermon was over and he'd be carried to the next congregation. In the end, as one gnarly old saint said, the only thing that will matter is how well you loved. By the way, somebody asked me after the first gathering if I would start preaching three-word sermons like John. <laughs> John is the theologian of love. That was a five-word sentence. What do you think? John's the theologian of love. And, and, and his three letters, in these letters that he mentions love 32 times, this is what he has to say. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are, but the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. If we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. I have a, oh, it's a stink bug. No, it's gone, I think, now. Thanks, Elaine. <laughs> Bye, Bug. We are a mixed body, but not with insects. We are pure body insect-wise, you know what I'm saying? Um, my uh, mentor in college, my mentor in college, when texting first happened, he thought LOL meant lots of love, not laugh out loud. So he once texted all his kids, 
taking your mom to the hospital, LOL. <laughs> what? <laughs> if John were here, he'd have a lot of LOLs for us. Lots of love. And this is what he says in, in one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. First John 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Paul's in the back of the room going, well, what about justification by faith? What about six-day literal creation? What about the five points of Calvinism? Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. We can talk about knowledge at another time, but there's also some love in there too, isn't there? Verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. Does that sound familiar? John wrote that somewhere else. It's like he can't stop writing the sentence. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. Verse 12, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. I want to slow play that verse in particular. No one has ever seen God. Now, you might have received a prophetic word or, or had a dream, but even Moses didn't see God. He saw God's glory as it went by. He, he saw, uh, Elijah saw God's glory as it went by. Nobody's ever seen God because to look on God in the fullness of his glory is to fall dead. No one has ever seen God. Did you notice, though, he says, no one has ever seen God but it's as if he's about to state an exception to the rule. So what's the exception? If we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to, I like how the, I think the ESV or the NASB says, his love is brought to, his love is made manifest among us. It's like he's saying, there's this thing that is invisibly true about you all of the time. And this thing that is invisibly true about you is this. God lives in you. And when we love one another, what is invisibly true about us suddenly becomes visible. And suddenly we're seeing God. What is invisibly true about us becomes visible when we love one another. I, when I was a kid, I would go to Chuck E. Cheese, and they would stamp my hand with a stamp, and I couldn't see it until I put it under the black light on the way out, and, and there it was. It's like our love is the black light that reveals what's invisibly true the whole time, that God is here in our midst and among us and nearby, and living in us. Our love for one another that is faltering and failing and, and riddled with mistakes is it's how we find our way forward as a mixed body. 
We may be hypocrites, we may lie and hurt and disappoint and even deceive one another, but we do love one another. It's how we find our way as a mixed body. Our love for one another is certainly a demonstration of the gospel. But it is also the sermon that we preach to one another and to the world. Because John says, this message you heard from the beginning, love one another. This sermon is turning out to be far more about demonstration than I intended it. My plan was, get all of our missional listening questions, find some themes, build a sermon. And this is the sermon I've been working on all week. It has made no sense to me. It made no sense, except I knew I was supposed to preach it. It made no sense until Friday when Preston said, uh, why don't we do videos where we engage in all of the missional listening questions, like short little boop, boop, boop videos. And all of a sudden, it started to make sense. And yet, I, I, I can't escape this feeling, this sense, this thought rolling around in my head that our love for one another is the sermon you and I are writing and preaching together as we seek to tell our neighbors and networks about the good news of Jesus. My contention to you this morning is that our love for one another is the sermon we're preaching. Eugene Peterson um, translated the message, kind of a spiritual hero of mine. Eugene and his oldest son, Eric, once heard someone preach, and Eugene said, I thought that was pretty good, said to his son, Eric, how did you think of that? And Eric was like, it was good, but he hasn't found his sermon yet. Eric was saying to his dad that all those sermons he ever preached over all of those years really were just one sermon. His life was the sermon that Eugene was preaching. Here is our one sermon, church. Our one sermon is our love for one another. And this sermon, its vocabulary is encouragement. Its its sentence structure is gratitude. It is punctuated by forgiveness. And when spoken aloud, when preached, sounds like joy. It is, its its vocabulary is encouragement. Its, Its sentence structure is gratitude. It's punctuated by forgiveness. And when preached, when spoken aloud, sounds like joy. Its vocabulary is encouragement. You see, to encourage someone is to put heart into them. C-O-U-R, that's the Latin word for heart. E-N, to put in. To encourage someone is to put their heart, to give heart to them, to place a deposit in them, to praise them, to celebrate with them, to encourage them, to say, I see you doing something really well, to call out the good in who they are is what it means to encourage, to speak life over one another. Its vocabulary is encouragement. Its its sentence structure is gratitude, never assuming, never presuming, but instead with a spirit of gratefulness for each person's contribution to the community, saying, thank you so much. When you find yourself struggling with somebody in our community, when you find yourself mad, anxious, upset, What you do is you pray gratitude for them. You pray gratitude for them. 
because out of the excess of the heart, the mouth speaks. So then what happens is when you speak to them, out comes what? Gratitude. Is your marriage struggling? Pray gratitude for your spouse. You ticked at your boss? Pray gratitude for your boss. Are you ticked at me? Pray gratitude for me. Our sermon is structured with gratitude, I just said. I said we never assume and we never presume, but actually what I mean is we often presume and we often assume, don't we? (laughs) You know? And so our sermon is punctuated by forgiveness. It's commas, it's periods, it's colons, it's dashes, our forgiveness, which means we forgive often. It means we're called to the work of forgiveness far more often than we would like to be. It means that Paul was right when he said, when someone offends you, forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. When, not if, when. Paul's fundamental assumption about people living in spiritual family and living in community together as a mixed body is that I'm going to hurt you, you're going to hurt me, and we need to find a way through it. And so we do the work of forgiveness. Now, here's why we don't like forgiveness, because we feel like it is giving somebody an escape from accountability, because we forget that forgiveness is actually an expression of accountability. Right? And this sermon, by the way, with its vocabulary of encouragement and its sentence structure of gratitude and its punctuations of forgiveness, when it is preached out loud, it sounds like joy. And I used to think joy was this happy, fuzzy feeling that I would get that was somehow more spiritual than non-Christians' happy, fuzzy feeling. But really, brain research is starting to show that our brains are wired for joy, and joy is when somebody is glad to be with you and when I'm glad to be with them, right? Here's what joy is. My grandpa came over on Friday morning, and we did a little road trip with him, Steph, Jack, and I. And when he pulled into the driveway, before grandpa was even out of the car, Jack went running out the front door and down the driveway in his pajamas to go get Bop-Bop. That is joy, right? Joy was uh, after I had gone, when Jack was about six or seven months old, I had to go away for a week for a graduate school class, and when I came back, Jack and I were making eye contact, and it was causing him to well up with tears because, like, the joy circuits were, like, that intense. It's joy. Joy is what binds us together, being glad to be with one another. It's what binds us together as a mixed body. Joy is what holds us together weak and strong, saints and sinners, sorrowful and celebrating when we meet in these spaces. When we meet together, it's joy that binds us together. Our sermon that we get to preach together is our love for one another, a sermon written in words of encouragement, structured with gratitude, punctuated by forgiveness, and spoken with joy. Our love for one another is our sermon, and let's get real about something that is impossible. It's impossible. It is impossible to love tirelessly, to encourage constantly, to give thanks unceasingly, to forgive quickly, to gather joyfully. It is impossible to do that flawlessly every time. And yet what is impossible with man is impossible with God. What is impossible with man is impossible it is, is made possible with God. And so John says this in chapter 4, verse 17. And as we live in God, 
as we live with God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we lived like Jesus here in the world. When it seems impossible to love, God makes it possible. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Instead, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets that when you are behaving as if you loved someone, when you are behaving as if you loved them, you presently come to love them. Don't bother worrying about whether or not you love someone, just act as if you do. And as you do, you'll find you've come to love them. Amen? Amen? Before we head into our response time, I just want to invite you that um, Kyle and myself and Art and Pam will be in the back if you would like prayer. Um, We'd love to pray for you, whether that's for um, physical healing, maybe something the sermon brought up for you today, or maybe even just something that you're walking through that you'd like more wisdom um, and help with. We'd love to come alongside you in that way. I don't know about you guys, but every time I hear this sermon, it's hard to not feel like there's someone who maybe comes to mind that the Lord's maybe inviting you um, to encourage. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone that you need to be grateful for. Um, So we're gonna just take this moment and I'm just gonna invite you to kind of ask the Father to highlight for you who is the person in your life and maybe most especially within our spiritual family or within the family of Christ. So even if they don't attend our church, but maybe another Christian, maybe a Christian coworker, a Christian family member, Um, who is it that God is inviting you and what is he asking you to do with them? So let's just take that moment. Father, we thank you that with you, all things are possible, even those things that feel so impossible. Father, we confess that we are so quick to see the things that frustrate us and others. We're so quick um, to be frustrated, to maybe perceive hurt. Father, that we are quicker to nurse our wounds than we are to forgive, that we are quicker to be irritated than we are to be grateful that we are quicker to criticize than to encourage. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come today, that you would convict us, that you would draw our, in your kindness, that you would draw our attention to the ways in which we're living outside um, the bounds, and that we would be quick to confess and to repent, and that as we live as a spiritual family that is characterized by love and by forgiveness and by encouragement and by gratitude and by joy, that the people around us would see a difference in us 
that when people encounter us, that they would want to know more and that you would be glorified, Father, and that your kingdom would grow. And so we ask that you would do the impossible in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.